Amen. Well, thank you so very much. And again, uh, you're probably aware, but you need to know it's Saturday night, for heaven's sakes, and we all got to get up in the morning. And so we'll be quick tonight. Uh, our focus is uh, on the interaction, Jesus' uh, relationship with his own physical family. And uh, I believe you have a set of notes. Uh, and uh, are we up there? is, uh, well, at any rate, what I'd like to focus on this evening, now tomorrow we'll have some time together, we're going to talk about Jesus' boyhood, what the Bible has to say about that, and, uh, and then spend time uh, exploring some of those places in the scriptures where he does, in fact, interact with his family, in the gospel stories where he interacts with his family. But I'd like to focus this evening on the nativity narrative. Now, this is a a bit of a dicey move because this is a, a, a narrative, a story with which we are all very, very familiar and so on. But I think there are elements in this story which are easy to miss. And this is kind of a thing with me. Uh, I'm going to get after you again and again. When we read the narrative in terms of our own culture, you know, it's so important to read the Bible in terms of its own culture. The Bible is not a culture... Uh, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not a, what do I want to say? It's not a culture limited book. In other words, the, the Bible, the stories of the Bible will work in any, it's not a culture bound book. Let's say it that way. It is a culture based book. These stories happen in a culture very, very different from your own. And I would just, just really, really encourage and implore you to familiarize yourself rather deliberately with the culture of the scripture. Now, having said that, uh, the, the story of the nativity and, well, specifically the visit of the angel and so on, I'm convinced that there is a measure of pathos and ignominy in this narrative that we almost entirely miss. On your sheet, I begin with that passage from Isaiah 53 where he says, and understand what's going on, Isaiah 700 years before Christ uh, the mankind, and specifically the Jewish people, having been taught so carefully to wait for the Messiah, to hunger for this coming deliverer, and so on. And Isaiah says, and you have it there, who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of God revealed? Now what he means by that, who could believe what I'm about to say to you? This is that which God has revealed to me as a prophet, Isaiah said, but who could believe this? And it says, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Here is this long-awaited Messiah, and yet there is no beauty. And he goes on, he is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now here is my kind of working proposition, and I'm going to try and make my case simply by working through the narrative. When we read that, and I think appropriately enough, we apply it immediately and perhaps even exclusively to the cross. But I think uh, that, that description of the Messiah being no beauty and despised and forsaken can apply certainly to his own life and even to the cradle. And uh, there is a measure of shame and anger and ignominy which is going to explode off the page when we read it in terms of its own culture. And so as I say there, and I'm, I'm just going to go straight to it, there are three elements of the nativity narrative that I would like you to kind of rethink, to recalibrate 
your head. And I'm going to say it one more time. What's at stake here is that we find, you know, when you go to the scriptures, in all of their parts, you encounter a culture shock. This is a culture very, very different from what we know. And uh, let me just take you to it. So I'm going to very simply three elements of the nativity narrative that I'd like you to kind of rethink. And the first one has to do with the relationship of Joseph and Mary at the time of the angelic announcement. Now I'm going to take you to the, uh, the, the narrative. In, uh, and, and as I say there, in short, Joseph and Mary were husband and wife. Now let me take you, first of all, we have these two blessed narratives. First of all, uh, Matthew, let me take you first of all to Matthew chapter 1. And I uh, should have had this uh, up, but I can get it here quickly. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, where it says the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, and it tells about the, uh, the coming of the Spirit on Mary. And then we're going to, and we'll go back and forth between these two, uh, Luke chapter 2. You know, it's an interesting thing. One of, the, one of the dynamics that I really appreciate in the four Gospels is they have these three initial Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're often called the synoptic. Appropriately enough, synoptic means they tend to see the same thing. Uh, they are remarkably similar and, then, and yet remarkably distinct. And in the synoptics, you have these two nativity narratives. The, the Gospel of John was written late, and uh, the three synoptics were in wide circulation, and John, in writing his Gospel, knows that his reader has the synoptics as readers. As a matter of fact, he expects them to bring the synoptics with them. And one of the ways in which you see this is that John summarizes, think about this, summarizes the entire nativity narrative uh, in this stunningly blessed phrase, the word became flesh. Now as wonderful and as, as, uh, as really soul-stirring as that is, and as, by the way, speak about what we talked about last night as mind-boggling, I like to say that I don't know God, that God ever set before mankind a, a simple propositional truth statement which more thoroughly drives us to the end of ourselves, drives us to our, to our knees in happy submission than this phrase, the Word became flesh. But my point is, we find that absolutely stunning and delightful and we rejoice over that marvelous marvelous truth how much sense would that say if you how much sense would that make if you didn't have matthew and luke does that make sense to you it's because you've got these nativity narratives that john can summarize it in that profoundly important theological fashion but i but you have these two narratives in matthew 1 and and luke chapter 2 and uh, uh i want to go first of all to uh, Matthew 1. And, uh, well, you know what I'm going to do? First of all, I'm going to take you back to the notes. And let me just, I, I, I say, look, I'm saying that Joseph and Mary, when the angel came to Mary and later to Joseph, they were, they were husband and wife. Now, the problem here is that, and, and sometimes this is reflected in the translations, but let me just read just a little bit of this in Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now let me just ask you, are you eyeballing your text? I've got it here on the screen for you. What do you have there for betrothed? I've got the New King James, the real Bible. What do you got out there? <laughs> no, what do, you, what do you got for betrothed? 
Anybody? Anybody got pledged? Betrothed is good. The old King James had espoused. It's a good word. A, a number of translations, the NIV has pledged. The old NASB, now they got to be bloody for this. Well, and, and, well, they might have, and so they changed it in, in 73. But the old NASB had engaged. And I think when we read this, we, we, we kind of read it. We, we tend to think about it. You've got to understand, and, and I have some notes on this. Uh, I think it's so important to understand. As a matter of fact, I, I tell people it's, it's, uh, you need to learn the culture of the scriptures. It's very accessible, and it's a delightful culture. It's very distinct from ours in many, many ways. But, but two places to start, I really encourage you, is, and, I, and when I say learn it, actually, you know, it's good to wallow in the Old Testament because so many of the narratives, in fact, reflect the culture in dramatic ways. But uh, uh, spend time with it. Get, get books. Uh, read novels from that culture that are, that, and so on. But uh, uh, there are all sorts of books like the way it was in Bible times and manners and customs of Bible times. And, and it makes for a very good study. And if you do a study in that, it's going to be all the same thing. You know, how they traveled or what their houses were like or how they cooked and so on. You think, well, how boring is this? But I'll tell you what's going to happen is you're going to have this chapter, for instance, on on uh, you know how they cooked and, and uh, how they made fires and so on. And, and somewhere along the line, it's going to take you to a biblical passage like heap coals of fire on their head, and there's going to be this grand aha moment. Oh, I see what that means now. And, and so it's, it's fun to do. But here's my point. As you pursue that, here is a good place to start. Start by studying marriage and burial in, in that culture. Because those two elements of life show up so often in Scripture. It's very easy to do. You can go online, you can find all sorts of helpful stuff. But uh, those two elements of life, those two features of life show up in the biblical text, in narrative, in word pictures, and they are so very, very different from the, what we're used to in our culture. So let me walk you through. Many of you are familiar with this, but uh, bear with me. The, the standard... Uh, uh, and I'm not going to follow the notes too closely. I, I try and I get bored with it, but here's, here's what a, a wedding looked like. And there were two stages to a marriage in, in that culture. Ooh, pull this around here, you can actually hear me. But uh, There were two stages. There was first of all the betrothal, and then there was the wedding. Now, the betrothal was the actual formal, at the betrothal, the, here's what would happen. Here's a clan, and you have a young woman of marriageable age. Here's another clan you have a young man of marriageable age. Now, this, for whatever set of reasons, might be a matchmaker, might just be somebody who knows both families, but somebody in this clan with that young man of marriageable age knows him well, and, and, and he is deputized to go to that clan, to the elders and to the parents of the young woman, and to ask for her hand. And, uh, and, 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 and frankly, these marriages were normally arranged. That's not to say that the young people had nothing to say, give me a break, but, but uh, they, they were arranged. And I know that sometimes we regard that as kind of primitive. You know, it, it, my observation is that if all the demons in, in, you know, in hell spent a whole weekend kind of come up with a courtship methodology that would most certainly prove destructive and they pretty much will come up with what we got. So I don't know that we got any high ground, you know what I'm saying? But, 
But nonetheless, uh, that's what would happen. And, and so this one, and by the way, the one who is deputized to go and appeal to the, young, uh, to the elders for that young woman is called the friend of the bridegroom. And he knows the bridegroom well. He can represent the family. And very, very importantly, that family is going to consider not so much the young man as the clan. You want to, this is another element, I get lost in this, but you, this is another element of, of, of biblical culture which is so basic, it's everywhere, and that is they lived as clans, as extended family. They didn't depend upon the government uh, for almost anything. They just, you know, made trouble in tax. But, but uh, uh, you know, I, I, for years when I, when I traveled in Israel, I had a bus driver. I loved this guy, but he was a crazy guy, but he was a Bedouin. And, uh, and, and his father had come off the desert. A Bedouin is, is a desert dweller by definition. He was an Arab Bedouin, and his father had come off. He had been raised in the city, Nael uh, had. But he told me, I asked him to sometimes just talk to the, to the group about clan culture. And, and he made a big point. If somebody breaks into my bus, I got to park somewhere, somebody breaks in, I'm not going to call the police. I'm going to go to the city fathers in that area right there, and, and I'm going to get everything back, and some knees are going to get broken. I mean, that's, that's still the way they live. And uh, now, what's that got to do with it? Well, think about it when Abram, uh, in Genesis 14, was still living with Lot, and some kings of the north came and carried off the, the, the Lot and his family and so on. Abram didn't call 9-11. Nobody's picking that phone up, you know what I mean? He put his little militia together. That's his responsibility. He's a patriarch. By the way, a clan is basically an extended family, and uh, the, 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 it grows by means of, uh, uh, well, as the young men go to another clan and fetch a wife and bring her home. And so this is why, so, so, and, and you want your clan to grow. And the only way is to have kids. And that's why the dowry, the bride price, and so on, because if, if this clan over here has a young lady and they invest in her and so on, uh, and then this clan comes and bargains and pays the price and so on, she's going to strengthen this clan. Does that make sense to you? That's why to this day in an Orthodox home, they still live as clans in the Orthodox world. But that's why there is un, undisguised joy at the birth of a son and rather muted, I'm told that even today, that I've never witnessed this, but when a child is about to be born and the 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 Mother is giving birth with her, with her company and so on, but the, 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 the expectant father is waiting to hear, and he's got his friends about him. And if it's a boy, the, uh, the, they come out and they start to whisper. The attendants come out and they start to whisper in the friends of the man's, uh, the ears of the man's friends. That makes sense to you. And they claw of each other to get to him, and there's great rejoicing and dancing and saying, if it's a girl, they do the same thing. They come and whisper in the ears of all the people who are there with the father, and they just put their coats on and slink off and go home because leave him there by himself. And that's not because they don't love their daughters, it's because their daughter is going to strengthen somebody else's clan. See, that's a, it's so much of the dynamics of life is built around that clan structure. Well, the point is that, uh, what I started to say is that this clan who is being asked about marrying their daughter to this clan, that's what they're going to check out. I want to take you somewhere in a minute, and I'll show you why that's important. Anyway, hurry up, Bookman. The, the fact is that if the, it's consented and everything is settled, they come together before the judge, a judge, and this would include the elders of the clan, it would include the, 
the parents of the, the groom and the child and the bride, and they would come together. It might be the first time they met sometimes, but the point is that there's a contract, and that contract lays out all of the various details. And one of the details that's defined in the contract is the date of the wedding because the betrothal period, and by law it can't be more than a year, but there, the, the wedding follows the betrothal by some months. And during those months, both the bride and the groom have a very specific responsibility. The bride's responsibility is to prepare herself for her wedding day, and I'll come back to that in a minute. The groom's responsibility is to prepare a home to which he can fetch her. Because when the wedding day comes, it's really quite simple, but it couldn't be more elaborate. All it is is the groom goes to the home of the bride, and in many cases there's something of a, of a meal, but then he escorts his bride to the home that he has prepared her. Ah, but it's, depending on the wealth of the family, it's very elaborate, they're going to win through. Now, by the way, so the bride has adorned herself in, in all of that finery, she has prepared herself, and this is the day. A wedding, a wedding is the happiest day in Jewish culture. And I'll tell you something, if there's a family wedding, you get there. I'm convinced, I shouldn't go down this road, but I'm convinced. No, I'm not convinced. I like to think that, no, <laughs> I'm having a conversation with myself and you get to listen in, but... No, I am convinced that, that the wedding to which Jesus went in John 2 was a family wedding. His mother was serving. She was concerned about them wanting wine. Clearly, that was a family wedding. You have to understand that when Jesus went to that wedding and encountered his wife, his mother, I'm sorry, and I'm going to talk about this tomorrow, so I shouldn't go too far with it, but that's the first time he's seen her in months. And he had gone off to be baptized by John, and uh, probably intended to be gone not very long, but after the baptism, the Spirit of God had forced him into the wilderness, and he'd been there for those 40 days, and then the temptation, and then the weeks of recuperation with angelic help, and now he, he has recovered, and he shows up at that wedding. We'll come to it tomorrow. And I think he was deliberate about getting to that wedding, but I'll talk about it tomorrow. Well, my point is that a wedding had to be, it had to be a time of great joy, and you remember even the man with the, with, the, uh, with the bland garment was thrown out in Jesus', in Jesus story. So here's the point. The, the groom goes to the home of the bride, and, they, and she's oftentimes held up on a... I have a dear friend, Stevie Norris, and I love this girl, but she went with me. She's from California, and she went with me to Israel years years ago, and ah, she really got a heart for it. She went back, and she became a missionary of sorts, and she lived in, uh, in, in uh, uh, Jericho for many, many years, and she, she met a man there, a wonderful, wonderful man, and uh, they married a man who was a, a local shop owner, but he was a Christian, strong, strong Christian, huge ministry, but at any rate, and she told me about it. It was really embarrassing for her in this culture. They had her on this chair, and they were carrying around, and they were throwing roses at her and all that sort of stuff because she's, she's you know, you're celebrating this, this, this beauty of this bride and so on. So the point is, that you wend your way through the streets and there's rejoicing and to the degree that you can afford to do it, uh, you hire musicians and poets and who knows what. All. But, and by the way, if you encounter a wedding march, it was, it's fully obligatory that you stop what you're doing and get it on. You don't just stand there and watch. You get it on. You remember, you remember how... <laughs> where's this coming from? You remember how wicked Queen Jezebel died is an Old Testament 
Remember that? This is one of those Old Testament stories for which you may be hard-pressed to find a flannel graph, if you know what I'm saying. But, <laughs> but uh, you remember the Bible says she was thrown down and eaten of dogs, all except the palms of her hands and the soles of her feet. And there is a Jewish midrash. Now, a midrash is a, is a kind of a sermon style. But there's a Jewish midrash that says that uh, as wicked as she was, the reason that God preserved the soles of her feet and the palms of her hands is because when she encountered a wedding march, she danced and clapped. Now, I don't know how thoroughly advantaged she was by God's grace in that regard, but the fact is that it amplifies the, how important it was that you, you join in to the, to, the, to the revelry, if you don't mind. And then they make their way. This is the wedding march. So the betrothal is some months ago, and uh, the date was established. And as I say, you get to that wedding, and so now they wend their way through the streets and they come to the place that the groom has prepared. And normally, it's, it's just part of the family home. In other words, his, his extended family. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of the expressions for marriage in antiquity was uh, adding a room to your daddy's tent. Because, you know, if you're going to get married, just go get you some goat hair and add a room in the back and move in with the missus. And that was which is another very, very important part of the... And, of course, they married generally uh, much younger than we think of. Uh, and, and, and reason is, by the way, because they wanted to grow their clan. And when the young man and woman are physically able to bear children, why, they get at it, for heaven's sakes. That makes sense. So that's more than you need to know. But here's the point. Now, I will say one other thing. I love... There's a story here because this is what would happen. I'm wandering here. But this is what would happen, and it was fairly universal. It was just everybody knew this is the way it was going to happen. And, and this will help you with a couple of Bible stories. The wedding march was crafted to draw attention, to focus attention on the bride. Everything was about the bride. And when they got into the home that the groom had prepared, it was important to kind of shift the spotlight to the groom. And so the way they would do that is as they approached the house, the groom and some of his fellows would just slip away. And everybody knew what was going on. It was, and, and, and now, when you get to the home and you begin to prepare for the wedding supper, that's what's going to happen. And let me say very, very delicately that, and this is important to what I'm going to talk about in just a moment, that uh, after the supper and uh, all the rejoicing, then the bride and the groom would go into the wedding chamber, and for the first time, uh, they, they would know one another, and it was great rejoicing. And, uh, and it was unspeakably important that they remain absolutely physically pure. That's kind of where I'm taking you. And uh, again, how to do this, you, you probably know, and if you don't, don't even think about it, but you probably know that there would be evidence of her virginity that would be passed around the room and there would be great rejoicing and so on. Now, they, they, they could take medical issues into account. But my point is that there was the betrothal, and then some months later, there was the wedding. And you can imagine that, that there might be the greater temptation to physical sexual carelessness because they are, they are man and wife. This is my point. I never got to my point. Once they are betrothed, they are legally man and wife. What does it take? See, because we read this in terms of an engagement. What does it take to break an engagement in our culture? One bad date, right? You're out of here. But what does it take to break a betrothal? It's a divorce. 
So they are legally man and wife. But, but they, they live separate. And as a matter of fact, in many cases, the young lady would absent herself from her village for a time and, 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 and go somewhere else to serve. And this is what Mary does. She goes to be with Elizabeth for three months. And that was just very, very standard to protect their reputation and so on. So my point is that, oh, and I want to make one other point real quickly, and that is this, that the, uh, the, the bride, I'm sorry, the groom would slip away, and uh, uh, as, you, as you began to prepare for the wedding feast, you, you, it, everybody began to say, okay, when's the groom? He'll be here soon. This is the story of the ten virgins with the oil and so on, and you're waiting anxiously for the groom to show up. And... Uh, and during that time, the, the, everybody clusters around the friend of the bridegroom because he's the one who had petitioned on behalf of her, uh, uh, the young lady, but just importantly, he knows the groom's voice better than anybody else. And so everybody gathers around the friend of the bridegroom, and, uh, and, and, and you can imagine, his, he's, you know, is he coming? Oh, he's coming. He'll be here. He's not, where is he? Is he don't worry. He'll, wait, wait. I think, I, yeah, okay. I hear his voice. Here he comes. And, and they, they come singing, he and his fellows and so on. And now they enter the room and there's great rejoicing. And, 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 and the, uh, the, uh, the wedding feast can begin. Do you know where I'm thinking about here? Do you know what, I'm, what passage I'm talking about? Uh, this is a bit of a, an aside, but I love it. In John chapter 3, uh, there is a... Uh, an underappreciated season of Jesus' very early ministry when he, he ministers alongside John the Baptist. John 3 and about verse 21, it says, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and remained. This is after the, uh, the temptation narrative. It's after the miracle of the water, the wine. It's after the cleansing of the temple in John 2. But now there's a short season. I'd love to get into it. But, uh, uh, but it says that John, he, he was baptized. He remained with them and baptized. Now, later we're told that Jesus didn't physically baptize. It was his disciples. But Jesus is ministering alongside of John the Baptist. It says there John also was baptizing. And, uh, and, and the point is that some of John the Baptist, and let me just stop on this quickly to say this. For several halcyon months, John the Baptist was the most adored, famous man in the entire. It is stunning, as you read the record, how, how the, the people of that generation loved John the Baptist. Long after they had, had rejected the one whom John the Baptist announced, they still loved John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus employs this on Tuesday of the Passion Week when he's arguing with the uh, Sadducees. And they say, by what authority do you do this? He had cleansed the temple. And Jesus says, I'll ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it of heaven or of men? Remember that? And it was such, oh, talk about strategic genius. But what's at stake there is, uh, remember the Sadducees put their heads together and they say, oh, we're in trouble here because if we say that the baptism of John was of heaven, well, John announced him as Messiah. And if he's Messiah, he has every right to the temple. But if we say that John the Baptist's baptism was of men, what? These people will stone us. They love John the Baptist. Think of this. This is during the Passion Week. So John the Baptist was as great a celebrity as the, world, the Jewish world ever knew. And, uh, and what happens is, in John chapter 3, I've wandered here. I have it there in green. 
that some of John the Baptist's disciples come to John and they are jealous and they say, John, Jesus is getting bigger crowds than you are. They're, abs- they're actually jealous that, that, that it used to be all about John the Baptist and now people are going to Jesus and they're hurt by that. And John the Baptist, one of the most noble men of all of Scripture, uh, is, is horrified. And he responds by saying, you know that I've told you again and again, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not going to take anything to myself that is not, is not given me by God. But then in the yellow there, he says, uh, just a second here real quick. Quit. He says this, he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now bring with you everything we just talked about, about the way con- marriages were conducted and specifically the wedding night. And he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands and listens for him. That's the idea. Stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Now, what is John is saying there is this. Uh, this you know, again, during that time when they're waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, all the attention is on the friend of the bridegroom, but how bottomlessly inappropriate would be would it be if the friend of the bridegroom resented the fact that when the bridegroom arrived, everybody gave their attention to him? And why would that be inappropriate? See, this is the point. It's what John says right there. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Do you hear what he's saying? This is all about the bridegroom. And I so honor John. And by the way, when it says he therefore must, he must increase, I must decrease, he retires. He steps back from public ministry because he's so horrified. So at any rate, that's just an element of the marriage ceremony that, that is important. Now let's wait, come back to what we're talking about, what we're supposed to be talking about. And that is simply this. Here's the point. And I, I make it here. Uh, I say, how, how do these realities impact our understanding of the nativity narrative? And I've wondered egregiously, but it's quite simple. The fact is, and it says here, and, 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 and we can read this, and it doesn't have perhaps the, the impact that it ought to have, but we read in Matthew 1, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his Mary, mother Mary was betrothed, they were man and wife, and uh, given the period of the betrothal and the temptations that are part of it and so on, there were careful steps that were be- taken, and they took all those steps. But it says, after she was betrothed, before they came together, she was found with child. Now, we, it says of the Holy Spirit. We know that. But the point is, and, and you've got to understand, Nazareth is a little tiny village. Every, and, and, and Mary and Joseph, it's interesting to ask the question how these two Judahites, these two Bethlehemites, this family of Joseph, these stonemasons, and then this family of Mary, how they had made their way to Nazareth up there in the north. I think there's an adequate answer to that. We could talk about it. But in this little village way up here, far from their homeland, where most of the family, that was Bethlehem down here south of Jerusalem, but way up here, just north of the Jezreel Valley, right alongside the Sea of Galilee, right just straight east of the sea of, uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, is, is a little village in Nazareth, and everybody knows everybody. And, and, and the point is that she, when it says she was found with child, just make that very, very practical. She had gone off for a season to be with Elizabeth. Now John the Baptist had been born, the one who was going to become John the Baptist, and she had returned home to Nazareth, and we don't know how long after she came back, but in time she can't hide it any longer. And she is found to be carrying a child. 
Now, my point is the, we, you have to factor in, folks, the anger, the hurt on both of those families, what this would have meant to their reputation. Certainly, Mary's family must have been horrified and disappointed. Joseph's family, on the other hand, must have been so angry, so offended that here they had, they had blessed this betrothal and they become man and wife, and now Mary, quite clearly, has done wickedly. Now you're thinking, no, she hadn't done wickedly. It was of the Holy Spirit. Well, do you, th do you think she's going to be able to persuade her family? See the point? And, uh, and, and so I, my point is simply, I'm going to go a little further with it because it's, it's interesting that, that the angel now comes to Joseph. She's found to be with child. And Joseph, her husband, and, and I want you to notice this phrase right here, Joseph, her husband, being a just man. And quite honestly, that can be read in, in two ways. It's a present participle. But it's often read to mean because he was a just man, he decided to put her away privately. I think it's better to read it. He was a just man, and he was loyal to the, the Mosaic law. And so don't read. He is going to, in fact, kindly and out of a heart of love, refuse to make a public example of her, which I think her family, his family wanted him to do wanted him to do. They would have been very anxious to put distance and so on. But I think what Matthew is saying is don't think that he was careless. He was a just man. But he loved this young lady. He was totally, totally, I'm sure, I'm sure heartbroken and so on. And so it goes on to say he decided to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Now, let me just say one thing before I come back to that passage. Uh, you know, there is a, a, a school of, uh, well, there is a community of scholars called critical scholars in Bible terms. And what this means is they are anti-supernaturalists and they are always trying to debunk the Bible and find errors in the Bible and so on. And, and they will go on and on about how these two nativity narratives are absolutely irreconcilable. One of them has an angel coming to Mary, that's Luke. The other has an angel coming to Joseph and so on. Folks, I'm telling you, they fit together so perfectly when you put Luke next to Mary. Because the angel had come to Mary. And, and let me tell you something. When that angel came to Mary and Luke and, and told her that she was going to bear the Christ child, I think she, could, she had to be able to reason to the fact that this was going to cost her the happiest day of her life, that uh, there was not going to be any sort of a wedding march, that she was going to be carrying a child uh, before she came together with her husband physically. And so, and, and the other side of it is, uh, certainly Joseph, again, might Mary have somehow persuaded Joseph that in fact she was still a physical virgin and this was not the result of it? No. It would take an angelic visitation. That makes sense to you? So the angel comes to Joseph, and I want you to read it. Look what it says in, in the yellow there. The angel came saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you. Now, I want, do you, have your text open? Eyeball this. And, and uh, that's a good illustration of what I think, even in Bible translation sometimes, we impose our culture on it. Because I've got here, you can see it, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. Now, what translation do you have on your lap? Do you have the word as? Is it in italics? 
I wish they would. It's not there. It's not in the Greek, and it, it changes the whole story. If it said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, what would that suggest? They're not married yet. Well, you see, that's what it says is, do not be afraid to fetch your wife. And what, 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 does, what the angel is saying to Joseph is, go get her. There's not going to be any rejoicing. There's not going to be any singing. You may have to do it under cover of night. People may literally spit at you along the way. But go, get her and bring her home. And I think it's one of the most noble suggested scenes in the scripture that Joseph obediently goes and takes. Now, he's been told now that uh, this child is, is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so you have this winsome picture, I think, of Joseph going to fetch his betrothed wife, now carrying a child which is not his, which certainly was not conceived after the wedding feast because that wedding feast never happened. And, uh, and I'll tell you something, months earlier at the betrothal, a announcement would have gone, I mean, it would have been shared with a family member. Most of her family is down in Bethlehem, and uh, they would have put down the date, and they would have planned on it, and they would have got there and so on. But now another notice has to go out. There's not going to be a wedding. Mary is carrying a child. She's got some wild story, but again, I'm going to say Mary's family must have been horribly hurt and disappointed. Joseph's family certainly was angry. And, but Joseph the, brings the, the, her home. And, uh, and, and uh, so at any rate, my point is, and I can be quick now, uh, there's so much going on here that I'd love to talk about, but to go back to the notes, the fact is that Mary and Joseph were not just engaged, as our culture might think. They were betrothed by the reason of the rhythm of marriage in that culture. There was a period of betrothal during which they took careful steps and the family took careful steps to make sure that purity was maintained. It was unspeakably biblically important. And now, sometime into the betrothal period, after Mary comes home, she is found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And it would have, it would have, it would have been a scandal in that little village that we can hardly imagine. All right. Secondly, does that make sense to you? I was going to re relate to the second point here. And that is, so I'm saying, we're going to recalibrate our head just slightly. I've got to be quicker. Number one, Mary and Joseph were married, and there would have been a great deal of hurt and anger when Mary was discovered to be carrying a child. Now, the second point is that, you remember, Mary and Joseph are going to go to Bethlehem. And as I say there, my, my point is, concerning the trip made by Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, where the child was born, uh, and in short, Joseph and Mary, would, listen, you get the idea, and it's, it's bogus in every way, but you get the idea that, uh, they, number one, that they went there to enroll in the census. So here, Mary is pregnant, but, you know, it's like Joseph got a postcard, and it said, because the Bible says that I could get into this and some, this whole census thing is so, is, so, is so interesting, but I'll just suggest this. Herod was about to die. King Herod, our Herod, Herod the Great. And, and Herod had turned that little kind of third world insular province into one of the greatest cash cows in the Roman world. But he was in charge entirely of the whole taxation system. He just kept sending enough money off to Rome that they 
they, you know, they plugged their nose and looked the other way. He's about to die. And, and the emperor, his name was Augustus, could not tolerate the possibility that for a few months everything would be thrown into such you know, chaos that, that the money wouldn't be collected. And so he decided to take a census of this region where he would have everything in ready to take over, in readiness to take over the taxation. That's what's at stake. So there's going to be, and everybody has to go to his, now, we get the idea that Joseph got a postcard and it said, now again, his home is Bethlehem. And everybody has to go back to the home of his, his birth. This, I'm talking uh, uh, Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. And, and, and we get this idea that you got a postcard that said, you know, town hall, Bethlehem, October 7th, 8 o'clock, be there, or something like that. Like he had to go right now. And so even though his wife was, folks, number one, there would have been several months. And over a course of several months, people were obligated to go. And there is every biblical evidence. I know this is horribly pedantic, but it's, I think it's important to what we're talking about. There is every biblical evidence, contrary to the popular idea, that Joseph and Mary were not making a quick trip to Bethlehem, intending to simply register and then go back. They were quitting Nazareth. They were leaving Nazareth. They were relocating to Bethlehem. Now, I can give you several indications of that. Uh, one of them is that Joseph took Mary. And there's absolutely, I know everybody kinds, kinds come up, why would he take his pregnant wife? She didn't have to be there to register and so on. And there really is no explanation if you have this idea that he's just going down there to register and can come back. So I, the fact that he took Mary, I think, is strong evidence that they were leaving Nazareth. But the other thing is that you remember what happens is that they go down to Bethlehem and and, and they hear about, after the baby is born, they hear about this attempt on his life, and so they go to Egypt. And they wait there until the angel comes and says, Herod, the one who wanted to kill the child, is dead. And then the Bible says explicitly that they went back to Israel. It doesn't say Nazareth. But when they got there, they heard, are you with me on this? This is heavy. When they got there, they heard that Archelaus was reigning. And that's why they returned to Nazareth. Now Archelaus only reigned in Judea. Does that make sense to you? They were intending to settle in Judea. And that was their home. Now again, there's, it's interesting to ask the question, well why did all of these Judean Jews relocate in the first place up to Nazareth? And, and the short answer is this that about 100 years before Christ, one of the intertestamental between Malachi and Matthew rulers by the name of uh, John Arcanus, one of the Hasmoneans, don't worry about it, had gone up, a Jewish warrior had gone up and conquered Galilee. And Galilee is some of the most pleasant living on earth, and Judea is some of the most difficult living on earth. And so tens of thousands of Jewish people had relocated from down there around Jerusalem and Judea up to Galilee. This, by the way, is why when Jesus sets out to confront the Jewish generation of his day with his claims, he spends 18 months in Galilee. There were many, many more time, there, there were many times more Jews living up in Galilee than were down in Judea. But, does that make sense to you? Their home was Bethlehem, and their primary family would be down in Bethlehem. So, what am I saying to you? And I, I, I'm going to try and make a point of this. That the biblical record is quite clear that Mary and Joseph were, in fact, relocating to Bethlehem. And they intended to settle there. 
Now, again, they knew Archelaus was a butcher, and when Archelaus, I could tell you a lot more about this, uh, when Herod died, he had left a will, leaving his kingdom to three of his sons. One of them was Archelaus. Those three sons had to go back to Rome, appear before the Senate, appear before the emperor, and so on, and have Herod's will, as it were, validated, and that happened. So you're over here in Judea, and, and they've gone off, and there were a number of other parties that went and appealed for other uh, arrangements. But the word comes back that, indeed, Herod's will is going to be honored, and Archelaus is going to rule, and he's an absolute butcher. By the way, he slew 3,000 Jews at, his first, at the first Passover after he became uh, ruler there in Judea, and he only lasted for about six years. He was such a butcher that the Romans expelled him. But nonetheless... Are you with me? It's when they hear that Archelaus is going to rule that they relocate to Nazareth. Now, here's, that is, I think, biblical fact. I can make the case really very, very carefully that they weren't just making a quick trip, that they were relocating. Now, by the way, what role then, because if you go to Luke chapter 2, it does, in fact, make the point that... Uh, uh, there was a decree and, uh, that everybody should tax, and it says Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth. And I think the point is that by reason of the things that I just explained, that there was this census, this decree that had gone out that everybody had to register, Joseph knew he had to go to Bethlehem. He knew that in the next several weeks or months, he had to find his way to Bethlehem to register. And I think he very probably just said to Mary, you know what, why don't we just move down now? Now here's the question, and this is, this is conjecture. But I think you can establish quite clearly that he was, they were relocating to, to Bethlehem. Why? I think it was probably because life had become totally unlivable in, in Nazareth. Honest to goodness. I, it's, it's just fascinating. They had decided to relocate. And uh, I can imagine, you know, I, I am persuaded, and I could talk you into this if you gave me enough time, that Jesus and his father before him, Joseph, and Joseph's father before him, were in fact stonemasons. I, 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 I love carpentry and so on, but I think they were stonemasons. And the reason is simply the word that's used carpenter, I'm sorry, that's, that's translated carpenter twice, uh, is this not Jesus the carpenter? Is this not the son of, the, uh, of Joseph the carpenter? The Greek word is tectone, and it means builder. It's exactly what it means. And you go to Israel, and immediately you realize you don't build with wood. You never built with wood. There is no wood. There's no beam uh, quality wood anywhere. You got to go to Lebanon to get that. You build with stone. You always build with what you've got. And I think Jesus was very possibly a stonemason. But my point is that that uh, uh, and 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 probably what had happened for many many years is that Joseph. Now we don't know at what point Joseph or even Joseph's parents before him, Joseph the adopted father, had left Judea, uh, Bethlehem, and moved up to Nazareth. But he was a stonemason, and stonemasonry is almost always, it's, you, you have to have a work crew, a gang. And so there were probably several people in the village there, several men, and uh, the rhythm of the day, and that day is you get up early before the sun comes up, and you make your way to the workplace, and you find a foreman, all work was day work, you sign on for a day, and, uh, and you sign on with the crew. And, uh, and, and I, I'm just imagining, but I can just, I think it makes good sense to understand that those other fellows probably came to Joseph and said, sorry, you can't be part of our work crew anymore. You're, you, you've brought home as wife a woman who is carrying a child who is not yours. And I think very possibly, by reason, I, I, can, I can say confidently that Joseph and Mary 
we're going to relocate to Nazareth. Now, let me just say that when they heard that Archelaus was ruling, they did relocate once again. They really had no choice. You have to live with your clan. And most of his clan was probably down in Bethlehem. The other part was in Nazareth. So he does return, and of course now the city, uh, he moves in, and ultimately the city welcomes him. All right, one other thing, and with this I'm done. Are you with me? And that is, I'll take you back to the notes. Uh, the, and I give you the evidence that I would appeal to to, to argue that uh, uh, they were leaving, quitting Nazareth in favor of Bethlehem. But then, and this is perhaps the, the part of the narrative which is the most misunderstood, and, and inexcusably so, and that is Luke chapter 2, and, uh, uh, well, let me just pick it up. He went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, Bethlehem, his home, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary. So again, he had to be done, and he took Mary along, but his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, see, you get the idea, and I know I'm ruining a lot of Christmas cards here, but you get the idea that they came screeching into town, you know, just the baby's about to be born, and we're going from hotel to hotel, and it's no vacancy ever. What are we going to do? And, and so we finally find a place, you know, in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in a stable and, 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 and an inn. All right, now there are two problems with that. Number one, they did, the baby was not born as soon as they got to Bethlehem. It could not be more explicit. Look at verse 6. It says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So they come to Bethlehem. Well, we don't know how long, but they are there for some time as they await the baby's birth. But the, the really interesting here, it says, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Now, what is a manger? an animal's feeding trough, right? The only, the only hint that we have that Jesus was born where animals were kept are the two references to the manger here and the shepherds. So she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in an animal's feeding trough. And here it is, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the word for inn there is kataluma. Folks, it means upper room, all right? Yeah, and I, I, it is so, the idea that there was some sort of public hostelry and that Joseph tried to get a room in the inn, but there wasn't any place, so they, you know, put him out in the, in the I, I think they did put him in the place, the animal pen, but, but, but the fact is, and I know every, every preacher's got a sermon called the innkeeper who missed Christmas, you know, and I'm going to destroy them all here, but but the fact is, there was no inn, there was no innkeeper. I questioned seriously whether there was that sort of public hostelry even existed at this time. There were things called caravansaris or cons, which were kind of large, semi-fortified uh, establishments in between two cities for a caravans, where the caravans could, could stay at night. But in a city, a little inn, I, I don't know that it existed. And the other side is that... that in, in the culture that we're talking about, hospitality was so important. And, and, and J J Joseph would have gone to his family. It would have been unthinkable for him to go to anybody else. So Joseph, but, but every, and I give this to you in the notes, the Jewish people always built their homes so that the roof was a workable space, a livable space. And the, the, one of the uses to which the roof was almost always put 
is a guest chamber. Now, that guest chamber might be very humble. Uh, you remember that uh, uh, the Shunammite woman built a nice one for Elijah so he could stay up there. But normally it might be, and I give you a picture there, just a place on the, on the upper roof, and it would just be a shelter and a, and a mat and, a, and, a, and some water and so on, maybe some bread. But it was a place, and it, there's nothing more incumbent upon uh, in that culture than that you care for people who need a place to sleep. And so you would go, I'd go on and on about that. But the point is, I think this is what happened. So let's put it all together. I think, number one, Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And so it was horribly horrible. It was scandalous beyond what is easy for us to imagine for Mary to be found with child before they came together, before the wedding night. And I think perhaps there was such, there was such anger and humiliation of various uh, degrees and so on among the people and the family that Joseph and Mary decided it's, it, it, this is really, really almost unlivable, so let's just relocate to Bethlehem. I think we can demonstrate that they were relocating. And I think when they got to Bethlehem, Joseph absolutely, for dead certain, would have gone to his family, some member of his family. And I think his family probably said to him, Joseph, we love you, and we're going to learn to love the woman you've taken as wife. But we're hurt, offended, scandalized by the fact that she's bearing a child that is not yours. And so notice this phrase in the pink here, because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's read it. There was no room for them in the kataluma, the guest, the place of honor that was prepared for a guest. But that Greek phrase can be just as well read, and I think it should be read. It's really a strange phrase, but I think it should be read, the kataluma was no place for them. In other words, we can't give you the place of honor. We can't put our seal of approval. But we have a cave, and that cave was crafted uh, as an animal pen. And, uh, and, and whenever you would, for instance, if you're building a wall, you would, you would quarry the building blocks out of the side of a hill somewhere, and you would leave behind a usable space. And if it was a, an animal pen, then, and there is every reason to believe that Jesus was born in a cave which had been crafted as an animal pen, and as you dug out the ashlers, you would leave behind. By the way, you could also use it as a tomb, and so you would shape it differently if it was going to be a family tomb. But if it's going to be an animal pen, you leave several columns of limestone fixed to the earth about, you know, yay high, and you hollow them out, and that becomes the feeding trough. And so I think probably Joseph's family said, we love you, but we can't give you, the, the kataluma is no place for you. And so, and, and several weeks are going to go by. While they were there, the time was fulfilled. And for how many days Joseph and Mary live in public shame? That's exactly what's at stake. They're not given the place of honor, but they're given shelter. And, uh, and it's interesting, two things. Number one, how many times do you suppose, and I'm imagining here, that Joseph had gone and gotten a pail of, and, 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 and some brush or something and had taken that feeding trough and cleaned it out and tried to get the gnarly, gotten fresh grasses and, 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 and uh, you know, 
prepared for the birth of the child, but the, the child doesn't come, so the animals feed, so maybe he comes back again and feeds off that, cleans out that trough so carefully and prepares for the birth of the child. And it's interesting that when the angels appear to the shepherds, they tell the shepherds, uh, announce the, the, the birth of the Christ child, but then they say this, this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now you have to understand, the wrapped in swaddling clothes is not the sign. In other words, they're saying, you'll know you got the right baby. This is the way you can pick it out. Because now, now every baby was wrapped in swaddling clothes. The sign is that you'll find him laying in a feeding trough. Why is that a good sign? Because you don't do that with a newborn baby. You don't lay him in a feeding trough. But Jesus was laid in a feeding trough. And again, I think it's because of the ignominy, so I go way back where I started. Isaiah says, who can believe our report that this long-awaited Messiah, there's going to be no beauty that we should, that we should desire him. And even as a newborn child, he was despised and rejected. So I think that dynamic is, is, is important to the narrative before us. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, tomorrow morning we'll talk about uh, Jesus' boyhood and then get into some of his relationships with his family. But let me just end where I, where I ended last night, that Jesus took upon himself real humanity. He experienced a real human birth in all of its parts. But uh, that birth was colored by rejection and anger in a way that I think it's, it's, it's worthy of considering. All right, thank you so much. Uh, let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your son. You are such a good and giving God. And as we contemplate our lives and, and the families about us and, and the prosperous life you have given in so many of us, and, and you, just, you just surround us with your goodness, and we honor you for that. But above all that, we honor you for this, the gift of your son. And we thank you that he did, in fact, take upon himself human flesh. And he was born and, 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 and laid in a feeding trough. And so, Father, thank you that this one who was God, very God, thought it not something to be regarded, to experience the glory, but he laid all that aside and took upon himself the form of a servant. We rejoice over that and pray that uh, it, might be, uh, it might affect our souls in a powerful way. Go before us now. Thank you for these folk. In Christ's name, amen.